Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 281 or 281. My name is John O'Logan and I am back. Yes, I am back. Last week, or two weeks ago at this point, uh, Zach took over the episode to talk about our uh, Battle Bracket Game of the Year feature. Uh, and incidentally, that is still going on. We're going into our the second week now, and or the second round now, and I, I, I'm not sure if the feature is going to be up by the time this episode goes up. But uh, this is, you know, this is in the hands of our our readers to pick what is the ultimate game of the year. So please, if you are at all interested, give that episode a listen. It was a really good episode. And check out the website and follow that. It's it's a really, really cool feature. Um, anyway, so let me tell you, it's really, really hot in here right now. Yesterday it hit 20 degrees. It is unseasonably warm in Toronto. And as warm as I am, my heart is about to get even warmer because I am here with the company of two guests. And today we have Bob. Howdy. And we have Ben. Hey. Folks, there are so many games coming out right now that I desperately want to play, and frustratingly, few of them are actually RPGs or adventure games, so they're not in our coverage. Uh, for me, we have Spider-Man 2, we have Super Mario Wonder, we have Alan Wake 2, which I really, really, really want to play, we have Talos Principle 2, which I also really want to play because I love the first one. We also have a new Like a Dragon game coming out in a few weeks, and that is an RPG, so I do get to review that. But there are so many games right now, and... Uh, I just wanted to ask both of you, uh, do you ever find time to play things that, you know, aren't in our coverage? Or, uh, like, are you ever, like, driven mad by the never-ending release schedule of all these games you want to play and you just never have time to play all of them? Actually, I, I find the wealth of games uh, liberating because I can just pick the best games or the games that I know I'm going to like rather than have to swim in sevens. So, mm-hmm. I mean... There's probably some good and entertaining games that are sevens. There's nothing wrong with a seven, but if I could play exclusively nines and tens, it <laughs> seems much better to me. As for the first part of the question, um, yeah, I do find some time to play some games that aren't in our coverage. Uh, typically, I have uh, an hour or two uh, some nights with my sister, and we play a lot of cooperative games online together. So those tend to be uh, more actiony um, than anything else because co-ops tend to be actiony or puzzly. Uh-huh. Um, and then now that I have a daughter who's now five, you know, I'm I'm introducing her to Mario, so I'm playing a lot of Mario stuff on the Wii. <laughs> oh, the Wii! Yeah, Super Mario Galaxy, man, you can't beat I, it. One no of the goats. Here. Yeah, no complaint here. Super Mario Galaxy is one of the greatest Mario games and one of the greatest games ever. It's brilliant. That's right. Yep. Oh, so good. I mean, I, I love Mario. Super Mario Wonder looks so good. I just I just need to have find time to actually buy it and download it and then play it. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I, I, most of like current stuff, I find I really only play stuff for the site now. I mean, I haven't been on the site for super long, but um, since I've been on the site, uh, most mm-hmm. of the like modern stuff I play is for the site. Uh, but I like to play a lot of retro games. And so, um, you know, I find time for that um, outside of just what I do for the site. So, mm-hmm. well, let's, uh, let's have a little chat about two games that you actually have played. Uh, and the first one, this is going to be intro. This is going to be an episode in contrast because we are we're going to be swinging back and forth between uh, the the horror of the, the the supernatural and also cute doggos in armor. Uh, so let's talk world of horror. So Bob, you reviewed this uh, a little while ago. It was a game that was in early access for many years, but it finally got a uh, 1.0 release. Um, and just before we like really get into the game and everything, I'm just curious. Uh, was it is did it make a significant jump into the full-fledged 1.0 or should it have stayed on early access just for a little while longer oh man if you ask the community they have very strong opinions about this there are people who supported this game years ago when it hit early access and the updates over time were minimal and Mm -hmm. then there was like quite a bit of dead air until it hit 1.0 and people were speculating it's because they wanted it on switch so the developers were trying to sell more games which makes sense it's a business um, but the, the customers who support on Steam were pretty frustrated because it didn't get a lot of quality life stuff that was uh, promised, and there still seems to be content missing. Um, you could go through the menus of the very difficult-to-navigate UI and see that some things just aren't there yet, and it's a 1.0 release, which is kind of weird. Um, that being said, uh, I tried to only experience things once they hit full release, and while I've enjoyed it, I, I can understand the frustration of people who were devote followers for many years. Mm-hmm. Well, let's actually talk about what this thing is, because it is a game that I remember you and I talking about it well years ago uh, and creating a card for it, but also deciding, let's wait until this thing's actually out. And we waited quite some time, but it had 
this incredible visual style and look about it. And uh, in the review, and I guess this is what it is, it, it, it's a combination of uh, Junji Ito's visual style and HP Lovecraft's themes. So, I mean, I suspect that most of our listeners know who Lovecraft is, but can you tell us, uh, Junji Ito, wh- why is his name so important here? Like, how, do, how does he come into the world of horror? Well, Junji Ito is a manga artist and storyteller in Japan um, who is has very much their own unique horror style and art style. Uh, a lot of their work has to do with things that are similar to Lovecraft, where like people go mad and then do things that you know a sane person would not do. Hmm. And it could be for all sorts of reasons. Like Uzumaki is a manga that was adapted into a film, and it has to do with this town where people, for some reason, became obsessed with spirals and people start you know, trying to find spirals in daily life, their bodies contort in ways that manifest as spirals. And the the pull here is it's just so bizarre and otherworldly. You've not seen anything like it before. Like we all know slasher flicks, we all know uh, zombie films, but this brand of horror is the only kind of horror in, I would say, uh, modern culture that even approaches Lovecraft style, which is mostly based on text and mm-hmm. igniting the reader's imagination. Junji Ito puts that to paper with a pen, which is quite a feat to accomplish. And uh, I think World of Horror captures a lot of that styling fantastically. Yeah, when I first saw the game, I mean, well, right off the bat, it's a one. It uses it's it's a one bit visual style. Like there are two colors: there is black and there is white. Uh, and with it does amazing things with those two colors. And also, it's a menu driven game as well, which is fascinating. Um, when I first saw it, I thought that we would be dealing with pretty much a pure adventure game, but this is actually an RPG. Um, I guess it is kind of an RPG. Uh, technically speaking, there is combat. It is turn-based, but it feels a lot like old PC games where you're like, you have a whole suite of choices to make and they're not always hit the enemy. It eventually does devolve into hitting enemy, but you have options <laughs> like finding a weapon, uh, having an ally distract the enemy for you, um, trying to study the enemy, uh, pray to expel a ghost enemy. There's lots of like little choices here that while I'm describing and hearing myself say it out loud, it sounds interesting. But in reality, what ends up happening is you're managing a stamina bar of say 200 energy points and swinging mm-hmm. a broken bottle might take X amount of points. And you're just trying to be as efficient as possible and kill this thing while taking the least amount of damage. So it ends up being a number crunching game and the battle component, which I would say is more of the RPG aspect of it, uh, I think is probably the weakest part of it. Interesting. I mean, there are there are a lot of. I mean, horror games nowadays are they're they're, they're not a dime a dozen, but they are they're, they're fairly uh, prevalent in the in the world of video games at this point. And, and I'm curious how other games that combine horror and RPG elements how this compares to them. Let's, for example, uh, one that is not recent. This was God. This is. 20 to 30 years old at this point almost uh but it is japanese too like corpse party for example like how does this compare to those other games that may blend horror and rpg together i've not played corpse party um so uh sweet home (laughs) there's a good one we're talking retro like that is that i would say probably the first horror like video game released ever it would a lot of people credit it with being the inspiration for resident evil um borderline so a prototype exactly uh so sweet home is an nes rpg and you know you're basically trying to get through a mansion that you're stuck inside with a party of just random people you're not fighters you're not like adept at martial arts or anything you're just trying to survive and you run into all sorts of horror type things you're navigating a, a map top down like you would in a final fantasy game hmm. and then eventually you get in these combats and they're very simple being nes era um, so I would say this is very similar in that respect. The difference being between World of Horror and that game is, while there are RPG elements, I think what draws people more to World of Horror is not just the artistic style, but also the writing. What they try to do in World of Horror is really try to establish what Lovecraft so expertly does with his text mm-hmm. and uh, what Junji Ito does with uh, his manga, which is you know you read a line, you hear dialogue, and someone turns around and all, all of a sudden they're not who you thought they were Hmm. and uh it's it's more trying to ignite the imagination whereas sweet home was more like an adventure rpg where you're like trying to get to the end so you can get out beat the big baddie all that stuff which you know feels like a lot of other rpgs this game is very much a you're you're experiencing stories in small bits 
that eventually leads to a grand finale. Yeah, the the short story format is very interesting because rather than like an overarching plot, it's almost well in a way episodic almost like mm-hmm. it from what I've read and from what I've seen there's like a you pick your playable character and there's like a board full of cases that you can investigate. Um mm-hmm. so basically it, it uses an almost roguelike structure to tell short stories in the horror genre. Yeah, that's it is a roguelike. Um it really does blend a lot of genres here. The roguelike aspect, as you said, is every time you load up the game, you choose a character, or you can randomize it. Um, you get five random scenarios. You have no choice over what scenarios pop up, and the game has quite a few. Um, you will eventually see repeats more often than you would like. Hmm. Um, and then each of these these scenarios can be solved in different ways. So they'll have multiple endings. Some have two endings, three, and then if you're lucky, uh, one will have four. Um and what you're trying to do is you're trying to, of course, solve these five mysteries, which are about 10 to 15, maybe 20 minute episodes. If you're new, it'll probably be 20 uh, minutes. Mm-hmm. And then after that's done, you get five keys for solving the five mysteries. And then you go into an abandoned lighthouse and then you climb the lighthouse, encounter things that you've seen many times before in previous playthroughs. And then you get to the top and then you defeat the big baddie. Now there's multiple endings I have not achieved and it's kind of a puzzle game in that respect. It's like, how else am I supposed to beat this game? Because mm-hmm. I keep getting the same ending, which could be a little frustrating because what you're doing is you're just grinding out the same content you've seen again and again and again. So if like three of the five mysteries are ones you've played before, you could kind of try to go for a different ending, but it's still, even if you get that different ending, a lot of what you're seeing is going to be a regurgitation of what you've already seen before. And that will now, get very like, repetitive, yeah. Yes, it does. But... If you're in for like, you just want like a five hour thing, this game is fantastic for that because what it does when things are fresh and new is it does give you that Junji Ito vibe. And you're like, wow, this is good horror. This is fascinating. I don't think you're going to be scared, but you're going, if you're into the macabre at all, if you're into horror at all and like, you know, madness and that aspect of horror, you're going to love what's presented here. But if you're trying to like complete this game, you're going to be clicking through a lot of dialogue and episodes you've seen time and time again. So it's more like pulling a slot machine arm than it is experiencing and immersing yourself in a game. Well, you, you mentioned the introductory mission. Uh, you, you have the, there's a, there's a first mission that kind of branches off and it, how does it set the tone for the rest of the game? I mean, you're, you're basically introducing yourself to the world in that you do a few, you know, brief stories that, uh, feel a lot like the stories you'll experience in the roguelike aspect of it, mm-hmm. but it's so easy and short-lived. It doesn't even really feel like a game in itself. It's literally just like a tutorial. Is okay. this is these are the buttons you press, mm-hmm. and then this is how you navigate battle, and like you'll get little pop-up windows. But the thing about it is, even after the tutorial, you feel like you don't know everything you need to know. There's still so many different buttons, and it being two different colors it can be exhausting to the eyes. There's just stuff everywhere on the screen. And if you go in your inventory, there's stuff everywhere. If you go into your status, if you go into an item, there's there's buttons everywhere. And it's just like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. A lot of it is not well explained. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tutorial does a good job of getting you running and learning as you go, which is also kind of a roguelike trait. Like roguelikes tend not to hold your hand too much. It's kind of like, hey, figure it out. And that's part of the fun and charm of a roguelike. But it, with UI like this, I, I would have hoped that it would have been more player-friendly. Hmm. It, it, I think it's fascinating, the, the the way this game looks. Now, first off, it's set in 1984, Japan, yeah. which very interesting setting. Uh, and I, I imagine that setting it in that time period was intentional because of the graphic style being what it is, which is uh, known as one bit. Um, it, interesting to note that one bit is not really, it's a, it's a, it's more of an artistic style than it is an actual, uh, video game system. Uh, yeah. So basically one bit means that you have two colors, black, white. And if you want like gradients, if you want like gray, then you basically put like lots of little black dots on a white background, um, to fool the eye. And it's an extraordinarily, uh, striking graphic style that was also used in ga- such games as like Oberdin, for example. Um, yes. Oh, now that's a phenomenal game. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong about that. Um, you are not wrong about that at all. So how does the game actually play into the night? Like it's set in 1984. How does that play into the actual game itself? Well, I mean, there's small little hints everywhere. It, I don't feel like I'm in 1984 Japan. There's no city pop that's playing. Um, on the other hand, there's, you know, cord phones so like Mm -hmm. there's telephone booths there's 
things like that. They, we do not have the technology of today, which kind of adds to the horror if you think about it, because you can't mm -hmm. just like call for help, just pull your phone out of your pocket, call for help. You don't have that access. So it could feel a little more isolated in that respect. But I'm even stretching when I say that. I, I think the 1984 aspect of it is cool in that, like you said before, this is a one-bit game. It feels like a retro game. It feels like mm. you're playing an old PC game. I would say what World of Horror is best at is style. It's got good vibes. It feels like an old game. And at the same time, it is still pleasing to the eye, which I think is incredible mm -hmm. that they were able to achieve that. Like It's two colors. How good can it actually look? And while it's not animated, most of it's still images. The trailers and videos online would make you think you're playing through some cinematic scenes. There's no cinematic scenes. Mm. It is just all still images, which that's in our bone. A lot of people pick with this game is like you're kind of misrepresenting what the game is. But the writing is good and the artistic style is good. Um, cool. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I played quite a bit of this with my wife watching. And then we're mm -hmm. like trying to puzzle out how to solve the, the mysteries in different ways. Mm -hmm. But it, I... I it's so sad to me because they've got a good thing here. It's just the repetition of the limited content is pretty frustrating. Yeah. It, it's a real shame because like you said, the game, I, I guess you could say some people would argue that this is not a looker, but the reality is it depends on what you value in graphics and visuals. Like if, if HD, super high resolution, monitor melting frame rates, uh, is that how you clock visuals? Then yeah, this game's not going to cut it. But if you have a thing for developers who, uh, pick a visual design and then stick with it and expand it and stick with it to an absurd degree in many cases, then this is the kind of game that really might be for you. And because of that, it is very pleasing to the eye because of its visual style. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you got to be in for this. And you can, the nice thing about a game like this is you can look at it and know if it's for you or not. If you need those AAA graphics, you're like a Call of Duty guy or whatever, or like you only play Final Fantasies or latest Atlas game, you might look at this and be like, eh, this looks like crap. But if you're like into this retro style and you want a unique experience, you want some unique writing, you're into the, the gore and this disturbingness of that horror can bring mm -hmm. this game is for you for at least five hours <laughs> yeah i mean the visual styling and the, the the static nature of it to me means that it's going to be much more creepy than scary it's going to be a vibe um how does the music play into that vibe out of curiosity oh it's got good uh music that accentuates uh the the vibe of it uh, if you've read my video verse review which this is probably my my game of the year right now video verse phenomenal game it's got the same sort of music in that the music is is like almost midi quality mm -hmm. in order to complement the visual style like it would be very unusual if there was like or an orchestral soundtrack for a game like this it just wouldn't fit even if that orchestral soundtrack sounded good it, it would be discordant and i think mm -hmm. with a game like this if you can have some high quality music that sounds like it's from the era it's a lot of dupes and beats mm -hmm. and things like that um i think you're gonna enjoy the whole package for sure yeah i mean it's the, to me it seems like the sound design needs to complement the game's visual presentation and it does in a way that frankly speaking like you said if it was orchestral the, the there would be a disconnect between those two things so from what i'm gathering here the big problem with the game is that it relies really heavily on the quality of its writing and visuals but then once you've exhausted all of the randomized events that you experience and you start getting repeats in the roguelike structure it just the game doesn't really have a a decent sense of progression to it. Yeah, it just feels like you're kind of spinning your wheels. Now, I, to its credit, there are really cool achievements you can do for doing unique things. Mm -hmm. And those achievements will unlock new cards or new events or even challenges, which is a whole different kind of game you could play where you, you intentionally take on a handicap so that you can have a greater challenge. Um, so the achievements are cool because they do add some replay value. Uh, that being said, when you go into a mission, like the actual gameplay is you go into a mission and it's about 10 to 15 minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you, they, the game will say like, oh, you're worried about your friend at your apartment. And then there's like a white circle that hovers over the, this little map on a square that shows your apartment. You click on the apartment and you'll have an event that isn't even related to what you're going there to do. It's just a random event. It's like, Hmm. Uh, you hear a disturbing noise down the hallway. Do you check it? And then you can choose, yeah, I check it. Or you say, I don't check it. And then if you decide either one, it'll do a skill check against one of your stats. And then you'll say you succeeded or you failed. And it's just like rolling dice. Hmm. And that's it. So like you got to guess like, oh, this sounds like a perception check. I'm good at perception. I'm going to check what's down the hallway. Whereas if you got a weak perception, you'd be like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to do that. And then you click, you know, decide to stay here. So 
that's kind of the strategy behind it is like, you know, what kind of skill check am I using to do these very quick snippets of checks? Sometimes there aren't even checks though. Like you'll, you'll just find a spider. So like, if you go to the docks, it's like giant spider bites you in the arm. Now you have an injury. It's like, Hmm. cool and i've seen that encounter three times like every time uh, i'm like oh this again and there's no agency in it i have no choice over like what happens i just get butt, bit by a spider and i get this wound in my arm that may or may not become something that really hurts my character down the road mm-hmm. so things if you got if you're like a hardcore gamer and you like you want like grit and you want like strategy and you want to be able to puzzle your way through the gameplay. This isn't for you. This is for like lean back in your chair and just experience the horror as it comes. Interesting. Um, it's a real shame that there's, I guess in this kind of game, it there are, they are limited by the amount of well, content that they can create. It seems like it would be an ideal game for DLC cases or even possibly user generated content. Although in that particular case, it would have to be, probably reusing visuals that have already been there and recontextualizing them. It, it seems like this would really would really work with some good old-fashioned DLC. Yeah, I, and DLC, the DLC would have to be probably either free or cheap because mm-hmm. it's already you know, a $20 game for what I would argue is you know five, maybe 10 hours worth of gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think modding could work really well. Like you said, they might have to reuse assets, but you'd be surprised. Sometimes people in the mod community who are like enthusiasts will just run away with this and they'll Mm. introduce their own visual style. Like people who are like passionate or obsessed with the game, uh, they could really surprise you. But I think mods could absolutely blow this game wide open. Yeah, I would imagine, uh, especially because, I mean, mods tend to break every game wide open, at least good games. Uh, or yes. they make a good game better in the case of Fallout 4, for example, or any of the Fallout games for that Dark matter. Souls. <laughs> yeah. Made Dark Souls playable back in the day. Yeah. It's interesting. This visual style, one bit visual style, clearly it's not going anywhere. It's used for a number of reasons. It's not exactly easy to use. In fact, arguably using one bit visuals is way harder uh, because you're taking away a valuable tool, which is color. Um, but yeah. it's, I mean, there's a place for it. In fact, we have the the play date. The uh, little handle, the little handheld console with the crank, which I really mm-hmm. want one. Yeah, that's pretty much using entirely Game Boy esque, very you know, one bit uh, style of uh, graphics. Um, yeah, and there's a whole community of people who want that dramatically. Is the nostalgia aspect of it, but I think it's also, and I said this in my video verse review, is like it's incredible what people can achieve when you limit their resources. So oh, all yeah. of a sudden it ignites creativity, which is like counterintuitive. You would say like, wait, by limiting my tools, I'm able to create something that's more unique and more creative. It's like, yeah, because you have to think differently to make a good high quality game in today's environment. Like you said, we're inundated with choice. How is your game going to stand out? True. And I mean, in art, effort, effort results in creativity and if you are given constraints you need to put more effort in which therefore has more creativity as an output um and that's a i think that's a very very uh interesting thing that many triple a games probably will not explore at least not for a good many years until there's got to be a point where indies finally make that where triple a games finally realize huh indies are eating our lunch at a like a tenth of the cost we're spending maybe we should delve into this world a little bit um i mean i think that's why like microsoft's trying to buy up smaller studios is because they realize indies are are able to accomplish a lot with a lot of creativity mm-hmm. that maybe some triple a studios or, or like veteran developers are not achieving yeah well bob uh, before we finish talking about this i wanted to give you a recommendation i may have given you this recommendation already uh because you mentioned sitting on the couch with your wife playing this game uh, and if you're looking for something that will give you what I think you were looking for in this game uh, and didn't quite get for just get the case of the golden idol, um, <laughs> get, get and play it with your wife on the couch. Amanda yeah. and Amanda and I played the entirety of the case of golden idol together on the couch, uh, figuring out the figuring out these puzzles. It's unbelievably good. Okay. Yeah. No, this definitely seems up my alley. Oh, and if yeah, you if you want exactly why you're recommending it, if you want a a, a very very uh, identifiable visual style, it isn't one bit, but oh my god, it is the ugliest looking game I've played in years. But it's an ugly game in a very intentional good way. Yeah, no, it's it's ugly in the best way. I, I like games that can do that. Yep. Again, at this 
point, you know, I've been playing games for like over 30 years. Like I need something unique. Mm-hmm. And if, even if it's an artistic style, like if you're doing something different, I'm in. Oh yeah. And I mean, this is the best, this is the best mystery game I've played since Oberdin. And it might, it might cool. be, it might be comparable to Oberdin in terms of what it does. It's a very That's different, it's a very different game. However, it's just as in-depth and really, oh, it, it, Bob, you just got to play it. And again, it's perfect for, I wouldn't exactly call it couch co-op, but yeah. that kind of let's sit down together and let's play a game. I, I recommend it to you, recommend it to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. And we also did have a review for it. So if you at any point you play it and you're like, okay, I got to talk about this. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, anyway. Okay. We're going to swing away from the world of horror and go into the world of war. Um, there's a lot of horror in war, but I sincerely doubt there's a whole lot of horror in Wargroove 2. So uh, Wargroove 2. Wargroove was released in 2019, uh, and it was kind of presented as a spiritual successor to the Nintendo Wars series, so Advanced Wars. Uh, and while it used swords and sorcery instead of guns and tanks, it did feature a very similar cartoony style, a colorful art style. It had over-the-top commander characters, uh, with special abilities, and I had very, very similar gameplay. And frankly speaking, I just freaking loved it. I mean, I really, really like Advance Wars. I reviewed it back when it came out. I gave it a 91. Just honestly, a really terrific, terrific game with so much content. It was way beyond just the campaign. There were multiple races. There was the the, the creation tools for uh, folks who wanted to create their own maps and even create their own campaigns were very, very generous. Uh, and now we have a sequel, and it's it's. I, I remember when this was announced, no one was expecting it, uh, and it's a sequel just a few years later. It's Wargroove Two, and Ben, you recently reviewed it. Yes, I did, and I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I guess my first question, which is actually going to be the most important question, the doggos are still unkillable, right? <laughs> um, yeah, they run away. <laughs> okay, that would have been that would have a betrayal on a level that no one could forgive. If you could kill the dogs, uh, that was one of the best things about Wargroove is that you couldn't kill the dogs. Whenever the dogs would lose, they would just run. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, why don't you give well, us an overview? There are cats in this one, actually. So there are cats in this one. Yeah, yeah. The um, well, we could we can get into that, but there's a new race. Um, I know there's uh, a race of mice. Yes, and they their cavalry units ride cats, which is very <laughs> funny. <laughs> That is that is a really nice. Uh, that's the twist. That's that's the hook. It's like Wargroove Two. We got cats. <laughs> Wargroove Two. We now can ride cats. Um, well, why don't you give us an overview of Wargroove Two and what it brings to the table? Yeah. So um, you know, Wargroove Two is actually really interesting because the focus of the game I feel like is pretty different um, than uh, the focus of, of Wargroove One. Where the first game is, you know, it's definitely much um, lighter in tone. It's a lot more focused on just like introducing you to the characters and the world they inhabit. And then um, kind of throwing together some situations in which they would fight. Which is very similar to like the original Advance Wars games um, on the Game Boy Advance, right? Like the, Mm. the pretense for why war is happening can be kind of thin. But um, you don't really care because it has more of like a board game style feel to it, right? Um, but Wargroove Two is very—it's—it's. It's, I would almost say like what Tears of the Kingdom is to Breath of the Wild is what Wargroove Two is to Wargroove One. So Ooh. it's entirely based on like recontextualizing the characters and relationships and state of the world in Wargroove One, and then building off of that into something that's really narratively very interesting. Um, has a lot of character development and um, you know like you since you reviewed Wargroove 1 I don't think those are the first two things that would be off your tongue when describing Wargroove 1 (laughs) but but that is like like, super super great characters like the characters in it are very very lovable but yeah it's not it it, this this goes deeper is what you're saying yeah very much so Um, and and based on the events and relationships that were established in Wargroove 1 in a way that's really interesting and something I really did not expect going into the game. Um, And I was really, really impressed with that. Um, You know, there's, you've got things like, um, like young um, queer romance happening in the story of Wargroove 2. You have, um, you know, like a portrayal of imperialism and um, the costs and harm that imperialism does to the colonized 
uh, people. You've got um, like a, a, a strained parent, uh, parent and child relationship between um, the the fell king um, Val Valder and his, um, you know, the the like Frankenstein like daughter that he created, Ragna from the first game. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just super, super interesting how they took the lore and basic characters and elements from the first game and tried to do something really interesting narratively with it. So, um, you know, and that's something that you don't really think about when you think Advance Wars either is like, oh, a really gripping story with really interesting characters. Mm -hmm. But um, they really knocked it out of the park as far as as far as the narrative and characters go in this one. Let's talk about some of the new factions that are introduced uh, in this game. So in the original one, we had, I believe, the Cherry Stone Kingdom, which uh, was led by, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I know her name is... Mercia. Mercia, but whenever I look at her name, I just think, Murica. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you have uh, multiple other kingdoms, including basically a plant kingdom, a, uh, yes. a kingdom of sand... Uh, things like this. Yeah, there's the Florins who are the plant people, yep. and then there's uh, the Heaven Song Empire, which is based um, loosely on like Japanese um, culture, and they're mm -hmm. more technologically advanced. And then you have um, the Undead, the Undead, which is um, Valder, who is the ruler of the um, Felheim, the Undead Kingdom, because he has the Fel Gauntlet, which brings the dead back to life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, where are we in this? Like what new factions are introduced? So there's one new faction introduced, which is the mice people that um, I, we mentioned before. Uh, they're called the Fari Republic, and they come from a different continent. So um, they are actually appear um, on the continent um, as part of an expedition. So it's like a scholarly expedition where they're trying to learn more about um, uh, the, the, the ancient culture that was there before the current countries, which I believe is, is like cacophony or something like that. Um, and trying to unearth their artifacts and learn about their technology and everything. And of course, that is what that technology and the influence of that technology is what caused the conflict in the first war group. So mm -hmm. um, when they're trying to unearth these artifacts, they, um, you know, run afoul of the Florins who that's just the part of the world that they happen to run aground upon with their expedition. And so they come into conflict with them. And mm -hmm. so that kind of creates an interesting situation where it's kind of like shades of gray where, you know, the, the Fari are just, you know, in pursuit of like, you know, it's a scholarly pursuit, right? They're just trying to learn mm -hmm. more about this history, but they don't know the danger that's present in these ancient artifacts and the Florins do so the Florins are attempting to stop them and then that causes the conflict, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's, they are a more, they're kind of a little bit like the Heaven Song Empire because they have, they're more technolo technologically advanced, mm -hmm. um, but they have more of a, a desert, um, a little bit of like a Middle Eastern vibe uh, mm -hmm. to their kind of aesthetic and culture and stuff. Yeah, and we also have pirates who are actually introduced in the DLC for Wargroove, yes. but they're here as a much more fleshed out uh, faction, essentially. Yes, so the outlaws, they get their own campaign um, where you play as uh, Wolfar, who is the leader of the outlaw faction, and the father of the two twins um, who were introduced in the co-op campaign that was at his DLC to Wargroove 1. Mm -hmm. And he actually goes to the Saffron Isles, um, which is a, a, a region that's being actively colonized by the Heaven Song Empire. Hmm. Um, and so he's sent there by Cherry Stone to kind of see what's going on because they have heard like disturbing reports about what Heaven Song is doing there. And they send him as kind of like an agent undercover to see, you know, what is happening if they need to intervene. And um, what's interesting about that is that his. Uh, his wife and the mother of his kids uh, is from that region. So mm -hmm. he comes across her sister, who is Nadia, who is a pirate uh, leading the resistance against the mm -hmm. Heavensong Empire. And so he joins them and then they fight back against um, Jar. Heavensong. Yeah. Well, obviously, the storyline is considerably more fleshed out and seemed to have some more stakes than the original. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the original kind of had, it, there were different factions, but it only had like one real campaign. 
How many different campaigns are available in Wargroove 2? So there are five campaigns total um, with there's like the initial like tutorial campaign, which then leads into the Fari campaign, which is the new group of the mice people. Mm-hmm. And then you've um, you have Falheim's campaign. Then you have uh, the outlaw campaign. And then there's the final campaign, um, which is when everybody comes together for the final you know battle. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think one nice thing about this game compared to the original is that a lot of people complain that because the original was the one long campaign, you had to kind of progress linearly in it, that a lot of it felt like it was a tutorial, Mm -hmm. um, where they're introducing the mechanics slowly and it would took a really long time before you got to different unit types, um, and that sort of thing. So one interesting thing they do with this is that the initial three campaigns can be completed in any order and they each focus on different unit types. So um, the Fari campaign focuses entirely on ground units. Um, The Felheim campaign introduces air units and then the um, outlaw campaign introduces uh, sea units. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you can kind of pick based on what your preference is and then you get to higher level play in those campaigns a lot quicker because since they're only introducing one new set of units, they can then take those to, you know, the heights of, of what is uh, strategically possible with those unit types um, within a much quicker period than what they did in the first one. So mm. are there new unit types in this game? Like- there are some new unit okay. types um, and, and, Kind of oddly, like they're heavier on the new unit types for C units. I think um, there's only like one or two new ground units and one or two new air units, and then there's like four new C units. <laughs> I don't think um, that's that. I don't think that that's strange because if I recall correctly, I I mean I very much enjoy uh, ground-based combat in both Wargroove and in Advance Wars. C combat's never been my favorite in either of those games, so I think that. Possibly the C is the place where the most innovation can happen in terms of uh, unit balance and things like that. Yeah, and the the those new units that they add to the to the C units are probably the most interesting mechanically because you have a lot of units that can like push or pull enemy units. Um, they even added a, a unit that can capture bases from mm-hmm. C. Um, so they got like a lot more versatile compared to where they were, which was mostly like either countering air units or ranged uh, attacks on ground units, which is kind of what they're limited to in Wargroove 1 and then in Advanced Wars as well. Yeah, it's Um, interesting because, I mean, one of the problems, I guess, with releasing a sequel like this is especially Wargroove through various patches and community feedback and stuff. As I think, I think the balance changed from when I played it, but I believe from what I've read, it got really good. Like the balance got fantastic in this game, but by introducing a single new unit, the balance is completely thrown out of whack. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you feel that here, or did they strike the strike the proper balance with the units? Yeah, um, you know, I think that's that's hard. I think uh, Wargroove has some some slight mechanical differences from Advance Wars, which I think impact the balance pretty significantly just in general. So uh, the major thing would be if you if you haven't played Wargroove before at all and you've played Advance Wars, um, you know, Advance Wars, only infantry can capture. Well, mm-hmm. in Wargroove, that's also true, but mo- like half of the units are a type of infantry. Yeah. So like a lot of units can capture. And that plays a big role in the balance because now all of a sudden like half your roster is a big threat to the opponent's headquarters or mm-hmm. other bases um, because you know they can capture a bunch of units and it. it's not so much about ferrying weaker infantry units and protecting them to get them to a place where they can then capture you know most of your strongest units can capture um, and you know the the new units are they did i think it helps the balance a little because now air there's an air unit that can capture and there's a c unit that can capture so Mm -hmm. you never feel like those units are just less you you know that those bases or those um production facilities are like just flat out less useful because you can kind of do all the stuff with each of them if you need to Mm. um but they um you know there's still those kind of inherent balance problems that are in the game Um, yeah i mean a game like this has 
to be absolute madness to try and balance. Like, oh, yeah. I cannot imagine as a game designer, you got to have a passion for this because, like, like you said before, John, like you you tweak one thing, the whole thing falls apart. Oh God, yes. I mean, it's it's what if chess, but instead of it being the the small little grid with this many pieces, you have a massive map and you have and you just have tons and tons of different units. Like it's it gets exponentially designing a strategy game either turn-based or like this or a, a game like starcraft must be a ever-ending nightmare to try to figure out the proper balance between the various races and their units or you think you've nailed it and then like some guy shows up and they're like oh yeah just do this and this some pull <laughs> the youtube tutorial <laughs> breaks yeah, the like, game back to the drawing board oh god yeah and and one way i think the balance is good though is is you know, the unique aspect of Wargroove um, is that you have the on-field commanders. Mm-hmm. And so they are like a, a individual unit and they are very powerful. But if they die, then you lose the, the match, right? Mm-hmm. And if the opponents dies, they also lose the match. So that creates kind of an interesting risk reward because they are simultaneously like your most powerful unit at all times. And they're also like your biggest priority in terms of protecting them. And so... That, um, you know, I think the war, the, the grooves, which are like the CO powers from Advanced Wars that each character has, I think are actually really well balanced. Um, the new characters, um, their new uh, grooves are all really useful and they feel like they have their place without being like overpowered. Um, so that's one way I think they really did nail the balance is that all mm-hmm. the commanders are interesting to play. They all have their unique role and none of them really feel like underpowered or overpowered compared to the others. See, it's interesting. We were talking about uh, early access a few minutes ago with World of Horror, whereas I feel like a game like Wargroove or let's say again, Starcraft or those kind of things, these games can really benefit from early access in the sense that uh, they can teach the developers about balance in a way that I suspect just internal testing can't. Uh, because there's only so like just personal preferences, even if you actively fight against it, personal preferences in terms of uh, in terms of combat styles develop. Um, whereas if you give the game to somebody else and they are likely to use all of the tools in a completely different way. But this thing didn't have early access. It just dropped, dropped like a just like a surprise. Um, so the fact that it's this well balanced off the top uh, is pretty impressive. Yeah, and, they, and they're very much building on the mechanics that were established in the first game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was beneficial to them. Um, you know, you're not really reinventing the wheel. Um, so, you know, you you can kind of build off what you learned with the, with the first game and what they added over time with updates and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then start from a really solid place so that when you add new things, um, it doesn't really necessarily upset the whole apple cart. Uh, because they've already got so much experience with different variables and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about there are, like you mentioned, there are multiple campaigns in this game, but much like the original, there are also various styles of play. For example, mm-hmm. there is conquest mode. Yeah. So, um, so that's the new, like, uh, there's that the new roguelike kind of mode, um, and that is where you'll like pick a commander. And then you go um, with different nodes on this map and they're like randomly generated what different events will take place. There are battles that you'll fight. Mm -hmm. And that actually has permadeath. So you're given a certain amount of units at the start. And then if those units die, then they're dead and you can't produce any more of uh, units um, just on command or anything. Uh, And then you're trying to get to the end of that map you know, with enough units to like complete it basically. Mm. And at different nodes, you know, there'll be, you, you can get like buffs or you can, you can produce new units or do other things depending on which route you take. Um, And so I thought that was a really interesting mode. Um, It's, it definitely has, um, you know, it has different like tactical considerations compared to just like a normal game of uh, Wargroove where you're not, your 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 priorities are different you know that's the thing about about you know advanced wars and war groove compared to maybe something like fire emblem is that your units are typically very disposable um, because you can just create new ones for a relatively low cost Mm -hmm. um, from your production facilities Um, but the roguelike mode really makes you value each individual unit because they're not easily replaced and so it's just a very different style of uh, of a gameplay 
Um, and I thought that that was really unique and interesting. Um, and it also recontextualizes a lot of the commanders and their abilities, um, mm -hmm. because suddenly like an ability that feels maybe not as great, like Mercia's heal is suddenly super useful in the mm. roguelike mode. No, um, I can imagine. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I mean, there are also, there are also other modes besides that, including a return of many of the, uh, custom creation tools that were in yes. the original. So yes. like that was the brilliant thing about Wargroove is that once you finished the game, if you wanted to keep playing Wargroove and you didn't just want to do random battles, you actually wanted to get an experience. Again, the fans could step in and they could create insane things that the developers in many cases never would have dreamed of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one way in which I think Wargroove 2 really puts um, you know, Advance Wars to shame. So I was on Random earlier this year talking about Advance Wars 1 and 2 Reboot Camp. Mm -hmm. And one of my major disappointments with that remake is that the online and, um, you know, creation features were so limited. Now, you know, in that game, you know, in Advance Wars uh, Reboot Camp, you can, there's a great map editor that you can use and everything, just like the original games. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to share maps with other people. They basically have to be on your friends list. You can only have a very small amount of maps at one time. And then trying to do online multiplayer is like so difficult and needlessly limited in uh, Advance Wars. And Wargroove 2 is like the complete opposite. It's super easy to create levels with the level editor, upload them, download either individual levels or full campaigns that other players have created. Um, the online features are really robust. There's online um, lobbies, which, you know, it's um, crazy that we're in 2023 and, you know, Nintendo still can't, doesn't have like a mm -hmm. lobbies in, in yeah. their game released this year. But Warbrew <laughs> 2 has player lobbies. You can join with another player and you can browse the, the um, you know, the server list and pick which map you want to play or, or which under which rules rule set the other players picked and everything or create your own room and have random people join you um so the the online features and the user creation features are really robust and they're very easy and painless so mm. if you like to play these kind of games online against other people then i would definitely recommend getting order because it's like the best kind of experience that you can get for that kind of turn-based tactical game uh for multiplayer yeah well the here here's my it's final. twenty dollars oh, that's the other yeah, thing it's only twenty dollars <laughs> very cheap bucks. um yeah i totally buy i think you're right about that um but actually my question is now first off i think the game looks absolutely terrific um i love the graphic style of this it does look it, it's it's a direct sequel it uses the same engine it's it's a direct sequel. It looks identical. Uh, and I, from what I've heard, it also sounds very similar. There are new compositions and the music in the original was great. So I suspect mm -hmm. the music here is good too. Yes. Yeah, here's, it's very good. Here's my question though. Um, if, if you were to recommend this to uh, someone new to the series, a turn-based uh, a turn-based uh, strategy fan, would you recommend that they play this or would you recommend they immediately start with Wargroove 1? Uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. It's an interesting question because it does rely so heavily on what's established with one. But I think that if you're someone who's going into a, a turn-based strategy game like this, and you really want a really gripping story with good characters, I would say you're actually fine to start with this one. And that's because, you know, that's much more of a focus with this game. Mm -hmm. And the original story, like while it does like set up all the characters in the world, uh, that are, you know, used to really great effect in Wargroove 2. There's not really anything super significant, like, story-wise, that you would really be missing out on um, by not playing uh, 1 first, um, mm -hmm. because it's just not the focus of, of Wargroove 1. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, it does a really good job with the tutorials and everything and easing you into the gameplay that there's not really any major barriers in terms of if you were a first time player, I don't think. Um, I had forgotten a lot of the story details from Wargroove 1, uh, you know, because it had come out like four years ago. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't completely like new player <laughs> fresh coming in, but, um, you know, basically they do a really good job of like reminding you of what happened in the past and why it's relevant mm -hmm. uh, now. So interesting. Well, 
uh, thank you both for coming on uh, and talking about these games. One thing before we go, I, uh, I have a discussion question from a reader, actually, uh, from uh, D. Brown. And their question is, and this is, let me just preface this. This is a question that we ask ourselves pretty much constantly. How do you feel about games that are not RPGs having more RPG elements added to them? Is it good that mechanics you enjoy in RPGs are showing up in more genres, or does it dilute RPGs from their own identity? Now, like I said, this is an age-old question that we ask ourselves regularly. Like, what even is an RPG anymore? But like, can we can we cover Spider-Man 2? Is Spider-Man 2 an RPG? I kind of wish it was. I don't think it is. Um, so I don't want to focus on that aspect of it. Instead, I'd like to talk about... Uh, how do we feel about games that are not RPGs having more RPG mechanics added to them? Let's talk about how the mechanics of RPGs work and why or why not they should be put into other genres. Um, I guess my idea and my, my perspective on this is, yeah, go to it. It's great. I think it's fantastic. Yes, it does tend to uh, make RPGs a little bit less unique, but in terms of progression, there are few systems, uh, there are a few video games that have as the, the the character progression is as fun as RPGs, um, where you have that level of customizability to make your character your own, to play the role. And when that is imported into pretty much any other genre, it does give you a sense of ownership over the character, even if the game itself isn't an RPG. And you can see this in many fighting games now. I mean, arguably, Street Fighter VI does have tremendous RPG elements, or even beat-em-ups, like, uh, for example, uh, most recently, the uh, River City, like the, the, the more recent River City games uh, have a lot of RPG elements in them to the point where, yeah, we theoretically could cover it. And that's tricky for us at RPG Fan because we don't have the resources to cover every single game that comes out. Uh, as much as we wish that we did. Uh, and yes, an argument can be made for everything. Like, I wish that I could argue that Alan Wake 2 falls much more in line with the adventure game coverage, but it doesn't quite get there. Spider-Man 2, even though it does have RPG elements, doesn't quite get there. But I think putting RPG elements into other games is totally fine. It's Most RPG mechanics are character progression-based, and that just improves a game's feel, in my opinion. Beautifully stated. I, I think what you just said, Jono, hits the nail on the head. Um, as long as it's done well, right? Oh, yeah. I don't care what genres you're melding, as long as you do it well. Like you, you can mix, like, Crypto Necrodancer mixes rhythm with RPG and roguelike elements. Mm -hmm. Like, why not? Like, I think that makes a unique experience. Like, I've never seen anyone do that before, yet it's done well. As long as you can do it well, I don't think we have to admire RPGs as being this unique thing. Like, don't touch RPGs. They got to be their own thing. We have traditional RPGs like Atlas Games, Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy. Those are, you know, your core traditional RPGs. Those aren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're sharing the love, I think, is is a benefit to all of us because it's, again, innovation. I Leveling up, having stats, I think that taps into something in our core mm -hmm. of, like, a dopamine rush ding level up cool all right what new toys do i get this is like as old as time like I, everyone loves that stuff mm -hmm. so i i say go for it as long as you can do it well as long as it's not repetitive oh we've seen this before like you, if you could do something creatively i'm all for it i fully support you mm -hmm. also river sea ransom is an rpg <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i think um i think it my opinion on it depends um, kind of like Bob's saying, like on the execution and also like what the intent of adding the RPG elements in is. So I think if your goal is to like expand like player agency and, um, you know, kind of the options or variety that's presented to the player, then I think it makes a lot of sense to add RPG elements. So like a good example of that would be, um, you know, games like, like Dark Souls or, or Elden Ring where they are ostensibly action games, but they lean very heavily into, um, you know, RPG, you know, character building and different kind of ways you can build and structure a character that are kind of role-playing through gameplay, right? Like you can be a mage, you can be a, a warrior, you can be a various different hybrids of the two, um, or, you know, kind of create your own character, fill out your stats and do that in a way that really feels um, rewarding as a player. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all based around really good um, exploration and content and everything. 
Where I don't really like it is when I think it's deployed cynically. So, you know, we all remember when the, the Suicide Squad trailer came out and they show the like Suicide Squad characters jumping around, shooting enemies, and the enemy dies and it drops like a piece of loot and it's like does 3% extra damage against like Batman infused enemies. Like that's Su very- Su Suicide <laughs> Squad? I have no idea what you're talking about. That's not a game, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like adding those kind of like really like grindy like loot elements or like loot treadmill elements or other kind of like leveling systems but in a way that isn't really change like the amount of agency a player gets or when they shove rpg elements into live service that's when it gets a little yes, bit exactly that's what i'm basically getting at is like when it's meant to create like a a psychological like response in the player where they want to keep playing but mm -hmm. it doesn't really add more variety or player agency that's kind of when it bothers me yeah it's borderline predatory and that's mm -hmm. an excellent point ben um i didn't even think that it also is interesting because of when you look we, we tend to think about genres as especially nowadays they emerged fully formed but they didn't uh the the genres of video games that we have today evolved out of very key places there were puzzle games uh, there were side scrollers that were very, very basic, uh, like, well, Donkey Kong, for example. And then those evolved into Mario and those evolved into the platformers we know today. And then there were uh, experiences that were taken from the real world and were imported into its own genres. And that's in the case of RPGs. And RP role-playing games were not developed for video games. Role-playing games were developed as game systems that were meant for tabletop uh, play and were meant for like stats and people working off sheets and things like that. The entire point of it was character progression. So when that was imported into video games, the origin of RPG as a genre, JRPGs, Western RPGs, is very different from those of other uh, more traditional genres in video games. And because of that, because RPGs were so based on systems, it was very easy to import those systems into the other genres once those genres got far enough along in their development. So it makes sense to me that RPG mechanics work in pretty much any context, uh, even in cynical, horrible ones like live service. Like it just, they're systems to develop characters and therefore they work to deepen an experience. I feel like I'm I'm listening to uh, an episode of Extra Credits on YouTube. I... <laughs> it's it's actually if you're not familiar, Extra Credits is an awesome channel where they they look at more of the academic side of gaming and you know the history of games and why things are done the way they are today. It's just beautifully stated, Jono. It's absolutely fascinating to me. I love game history so much. Game history is game history is still in its infancy, and like it's it's astounding when we look at how big the game industry has gotten in the last 30, 40 years and consider that like right now in terms of like, if we were the film industry, we're in the early 1950s uh, in terms of the timeline. Uh, so, and if we look back on the films from the early 1950s, a lot of them aren't very good. They were still figuring things out. So can you just imagine what it's going to be like in about 30 years from now when this industry keeps evolving and keeps maturing and new types of experiences are developed. Like we've come so far in such a short time and there is so much more uh, room to grow. I look forward to it. Going back to your first question when we started the podcast, like am I frustrated by the wealth of games available to me? I've been gaming since the NES came out in the 80s. Imagine what it's like to be a kid today where you've got all the retro stuff all the new stuff coming out you cannot physically there's not enough time in your lifetime to play all the good stuff out there that's got to be daunting oh god yes there's so much and also there's so much in every single other genre of media like how many books are released a year how many films television were despite the fact that you know various streaming services have said they're going to cut back there are still countless series that are released on all of like every single month and that i look at it and i'm like i want to watch that like there was one called i think it was bodies on netflix and it was like a time travel murder mystery and i was like oh god that sounds exactly like something i want to watch <laughs> and i have not yet uh because again there is just too much so you gotta get i guess you just gotta get real choosy you gotta get really good at trying to zero in on what your thing is uh and that i'm gonna tie this into what we do that is a reason why reviewers exist 
I, I hate arguments that I have arguments with people in theater, especially where they're like, there shouldn't be reviewers. Your reviewers shouldn't exist. They don't contribute anything. And I'm like, yeah, they contribute something very important, which is there's a lot of shit out there. And I don't mean in terms of quality. I just mean like, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff. There's so much stuff. And something that reviewers do is, and yes, it is personal taste. But if you find a reviewer that you trust, you like, and your taste fairly well aligns with them, they're going to be able to tell you, okay, here's what you're probably going to like. Let's lead you down this way. Check this out, maybe. And that is an invaluable service, um, in my opinion. And that's one of the reasons why the site exists. Well, you gain time, right? Beyond the dollars, is like RPGs especially can be dozens of hours, sometimes even over 100 hours. So like, before I make the commitment, I want to, you know, hear someone who knows what they're talking about, someone I trust, who's going to spare me the time investment where I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. God, I got slog through this because I'm already halfway through and I feel like I got to finish it. Like a, a reviewer is critical for that reason alone, because like you said, there's just too much out there. And I, I can't look at every single trailer and decide and make a wise decision. I could throw a dart at a dartboard, but I'm going to miss mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And sometimes throwing a dart at a dartboard is great. Sometimes you discover something like I, like I threw a dart at a dartboard when I discovered the Yakuza series. I had no interest in Yakuza. I got assigned it by Alana and bam, oh my God, this, this connected with me. So it's amazing when that happens. However, sometimes you just, they're not gatekeepers. Like reviewers aren't gatekeepers. Reviewers are like, well, showroom salesmen, maybe they're like, (laughs) take a look over here. Oh, here's something nice. Oh, don't look at that over there. That's that's Fallout 76. Keep away from that. And that's kind of the nice thing about, you know, RPG fan as a as a focused on like a, a handful of genres, too, mm-hmm. is that we have the ability to talk about things that a lot of other larger, more broadly focused sites aren't really going to focus their time and energy on. So if you know, like, oh, yeah, I really love RPGs, then you you can come to the site and you can expect that somebody's going to be talking or writing about a game that you might be interested in that, mm. that fits with your very narrow interests. And in a way that, you know, a lot of, a lot of other places where you might look for recommendations just are going to miss. Yeah. And I mean, there are tons of sites out there like that. For example, Adventure Gamers. Uh, .com is a site that's entirely dedicated to uh, point-and-click adventure games and others in the adventure game genre. And they're, like, we cover adventure games and we cover point-and-click adventure games. We can't even remotely cover even a tenth of what's out there. But these guys seem to do a fantastic job. Great website, by the way. Really, really strong reviews in many cases. I, I recommend them if you're looking for some uh, good adventure game coverage. I'll just try yeah, Aud- what? Audra's trying to get through all the adventure games. Oh, Audra's trying to get through all of the adventure. Audra's trying to get through every game, period, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so are you, Bob. Um, and also, Ben, you're doing quite a job, and I'm just like, I just want to play like a dragon. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I have no doubt I would love Yakuza, but that's like 15 games, and they're all long games. I'm like, I cannot physically do it. I'm afraid of falling in love with that franchise. I think that that is a very wise decision that you've made, Bob. <laughs> a very wise decision. Uh, and thankfully, because I am a, a greedy, greedy boss, uh, you will never be assigned to, uh, like a dragon game. Hey, it's a win-win in my book. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. Well, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I really, really appreciate it. Um, uh, if you're looking for a way to support us here at RPG Fan, we've opened a store. You can find it at www.rpgfan.com slash shop. Uh, we have lots of things on there, including we're very soon going to have some more 25th anniversary merch. Uh, our 25th anniversary is, she's rapidly wrapping up, considering that so is 2023. So uh, make sure you go on there and check that stuff out. Uh, when that stuff is posted, uh, believe me, I will give you a heads up on the show. Uh, you can also check out our past episodes of Random Encounter if you are very curious and wish to support us. Like I mentioned in the past, check out our last episode because it, it was a it's a pretty darn good feature. And it, it, the way it's developing the the various heats, it's, it's, I'm really enjoying how it's, how it's going down. Uh, we also have some other podcasts here at RPG Fan. We have Retro Encounter. And uh, two weeks ago, we had a two-parter for Rhapsody Musical Adventure. So that was over the course of two weeks. And the last episode was our Halloween special. Uh, Solosi put it together. It's RPG Costume Party. And uh, it's a pretty fun episode where they talk about, well, basically your favorite costumes in RPGs, uh, which very, very timely considering it's the end of October. Uh, we also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG fans' music podcast. Uh, last week, we had Party in the GTA. And uh, it was an episode actually, again, hosted by Solosi. And in it, we they, they talked about uh, 
basically Game Boy Advanced music. And the Game Boy Advance, interesting because it did have an underpowered sound chip. Really, really some good music came out of that era. So absolutely check that episode out. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us here at Random Encounter, you can fire us off a message at podcast at rpgfan.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any ideas for future episodes, if you have any discussion questions, uh, D Brown, thank you very, very much for yours. Uh, if anyone out there wishes to uh, have us discuss your question on the show, please send one in. If you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at jlogan at rpgfan.com. You can also find me on Mastodon at johnologan at mastodon.social. And I'm not the only person on this podcast who have an online presence. Bob, where can we find you online? Bob at RPGfan.com. Perfect. I love emails. Cool. And Ben, where can we find you online? Yeah, uh, BenLoganLove at gmail.com. Cool. All right. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. You can help us get the word out there. You can also rate us on iTunes or your other podcast player of choice. Again, Ben, Bob, thank you so very much for joining me this evening. I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate you spending uh, your evening with me talking about these games that you spent hours playing. Thank you for having me. Um, always enjoy to be on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It was great. Thank you both. Uh, and to everyone out there listening, whatever you're playing, have fun. <laughs>